Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 12th of October 2020. This is episode 179. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Richard Pursehouse about his recent book on German POWs held at Brockton Camp on Cannock Chase, Staffordshire, during the Great War. This book is published by Pen and Sword. Richard spoke to me from his home in Cannock. Hi Richard, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Afternoon, yes. Well, um, I suppose like with a lot of people, my interest is, um, came about from watching the World at War series and that sort of thing on TV as a child, building airfix and Tamiya models and kind of growing up and just trying to get behind the story about the individuals rather than the big armies all over the place and that sort of thing. And um, and then it kind of moved on when I went into college, went to college did a few um, projects and that sort of thing. My dissertation was on the Waffen SS. I also covered things about the uh, literature, the Vietnam War, Great War poetry. And it kind of started to strike me that over the years, things haven't changed. It's all about the individual. And um, it sort of expanded from that. I thought, great, fantastic. You want to give me an honours degree in uh, <laughs> doing things that I love doing anyway? Well, thank you very much. So, uh, But um, so that's, that's where my interest came. Because I started, say, Second World War, went to the backwards in First War and that sort of thing, and um, just trying to get as wide a scope as possible. And tell us about your book on prisoners of war on Cannock Chase. Why did you write it? Having gone across onto the continent as what we call grave spotted by my wife and various girlfriends and that, we kind of got caught wind that there was a, a couple of uh, camps over Cannock Chase, and those camps became more and more relevant once once you started speaking to people. And uh, they said, "Oh yeah, I know about that camp, and there was that camp as well." So there's Brockton Camp, there's Rugeley Camp, and then we got interested in specifically the New Zealand troops that were based on Cannock Chase. You kind of end up, as we call it, tangentializing. It's a word we've invented. I'm quite sure there's people out there that, that will understand this word. You start on one track and you end up on another and you end up on another final track. And with the Prisoner War Camp book, we started to realise that the New Zealanders were very, very close to um, where the Prisoner War Camp was. There was claims in a book called The Town Four Winters that um, they used prisoners to construct part of the, the model, although we've always argued that would be treasonable and, and uh, from the Germans' point of view. So they may have done some labouring, but it kind of intrigued us that these facts were out there, but there's so little, if nothing, written about them. So I ended up doing some research. It was looking at getting into Bulletin or Stand 2 as maybe a couple of stories, one on the camp and one on the hospital. But then when I actually sat down, I thought, there's so much here, it's got to be put in a book. (laughs) So... um... That's, that's where it ended up initially, that um, carried on getting the research done. And um, what happened was I got in contact with Martin Mace, who at the time, as editor of Britain at War magazine, had uh, featured the excavation of the Messines model on Cannock Chase, which was built by the New Zealanders. I'd co- contacted Martin and said, look, I know you, you're interested in a book on the, the Messines model. Messines, for anyone who doesn't know, is, is a town in um, Belgium. And the New Zealanders, after the battle, had constructed this model. Um, and it's, he said, yes, still very interested. It's worthy of a book. I said, well, what about doing the prisoner war camp that was 
500 yards away. And he said, no, done to death, First World War, leave it for a bit, we'll come back to it. But I'll have a look at what you've got. Um, might be able to point you in the right direction. Martin's been working for Frontline Book for quite a while, since he finished with Britain War magazine. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, Frontline publications are part of Pen and Sword. So I got that it, it wasn't going to be of interest, but at least he was prepared to help out. But anyway, he got back to me very quickly, which is unusual for Martin. He normally ignores you. And um, he said, this is not going anywhere. And I said, no, is it that bad? And he went, no, 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 don't, don't, you don't understand. It's not going anywhere because we want to do it. It's so different. You've got some fantastic stories. You've got uh, things like the newspapers that they published and that sort of thing. You've got a little bit of scandal about one of the um, prison officers. Was he was he um, murdered? Was he uh, was it suicide? And you've got all these letters from the, the clerk that worked at the prisoner war camp. These are the stories of the individuals that, are, that were up there and the ones that, you know, they're buried over there because of the uh, Spanish flu pandemic. And that's where it all sprang from. So I sent in the manuscript. We've worked through it and um, ended up getting published. Before we get into the detail of all those mysteries and stories, could you tell us what and where is Cannock Chase? Cannock Chase is um, part of the Midlands. It's in Staffordshire and it was selected for the two training camps, Brockton and Rugeley, um, because of the, the rolling countryside and um, l- lack of people li- living in the area. So you could train troops on, the, on there's about, I think it's about eight rifle ranges and things like that. Um, they, they had the sniper school um, established on Cannock Chase, which is the first sniper school in the country. I think part of the reason that the prisoner war camp ended up on Cannock Chase is not just because of its relatively isolated um, position, but also it's right in the middle of the, of the country. So anyone attempting to escape has got to get to the coast. So you don't put a prisoner war camp by the coast if you can help it. You put it in the middle of the landmass. But it's an area of outstanding natural beauty. It's fantastic. There's lots of wildlife over there. And every time you go over there, you you, you can sense the uh, almost the presence of the of the of the history of the area. What documentary sources did you use to write the book? Well, having chatted with friends sort of 2005 onward, um, there's only one book actually written about the camps, a general book, and it's written over 30 years ago, and that's by Jake Jake Whitehouse's wife. And it's just about the prison, or it's just about the camps generally, and it's called The Town for Four Winds. It mentions Messines model, it mentions the prisoners, but other than that, it's just a general rough, hardly scratching the surface book because it's such a big subject matter. So I realise you've got Dell further, so you go to the local newspapers at, held at the William Salt Library. Great guys there helping out. You go to public records office, um, getting lots of um, files out to do with the camps in general and also the uh, prisoner war camp and the visits by the Swiss legation. And you've also got the Staffordshire record office. So you've got people like Ben Cunliffe who are interested in this stuff anyway. Uh, Ben's done some of the artwork in the book. And you look at all this and you think, well, if you keep going to the records office, you find out how the, the camp's constructed, the, the prisoners, the day-to-day lives. You start segueing all this information into the newspaper features, people that you talk Talk to who, who were able to provide you with additional photographs. As well as that, you've got um, pe- people like over in New Zealand, you've got Dolores Ho, the ar- ar- archivist at the National Army Museum, who's been able to help with the New Zealand side of everything. But the one, so there's two main gems, and one was I managed to get for £20 off eBay a few years back. 20 pages from the um, Brockton newspaper that was produced by the by the German prisoners, and also the um, letters that are held at the Imperial War Museum by the, uh, the clerk, Horace 
Thompson. And he was sending these letters home along with other things like um, buttons and cigars and uh, bilbies that grow over the chase. And he was sending them home and his mother bequeathed the letters to the Imperial War Museum. They are of nil interest to anyone with all due respect to the family, apart from anyone who is doing this book. And there are some cracker stories in there about the escapes, the um, the theatre productions, the day-to-day living, the food, problems that prisoners had fighting amongst themselves and, and, and the, uh, the Spanish flu, the New Zealanders. Fantastic, absolute find that just had to get into the book and had to, it was the driving force of the whole book. Right, let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us about the establishment extent of Brockton and Rugeley camps? Now, should I be saying there are two camps or should I just stick to one? That's a good question and I'll give the answer. It was actually Cannock Chase Reserve Centre was the full title and in Cannock Chase Reserve Centre there was the Brockton camp and on the valley opposite there was Rugeley camp. So in effect it was two camps within the overall um, um, Cannock Chase Reserve Centre. So um, about 1915, May 1915, um, the local lord, Lord Anson from Shugborough Hall, he um, allowed the area to be handed over to um, Northern Command, which was based in York, on, ironically on the understanding that no prisoners would be kept there. And because the area had been used for army manoeuvres, sort of 19, uh, 1871 and that sort of thing, he thought, well, this is a perfect ideal terrain for troops to train uh, out of harm's way and nobody can sort of get get. Um, injured or anything like that, like civilians and that. And um, so he allowed the area to be used. And the area, I mean, Cannock Chase is 85 miles squared, but the actual area of the two camp, if you add them together, is probably about seven or eight miles. And um, it, it ended up with it's electricity supply, water supply had to be brought to the camp. But what they end, ended up doing, they ended up um, using part of the, the Brockton camp on the periphery for the actual um, prisoner of war camp because they needed a, a separate area that was ready built or purpose built almost by hand. And they wanted to make sure that they had troops nearby, which in this instance was the New Zealanders, that could be used as a mobile police force if necessary. So it was it was a perfect situation because it was isolated. There were no real really near towns nearby. And you've also got a railway station that they built a um an extension to that could bring up the prisoners on the railway line uh, which the the railway line still stands it's called Takaru and people walk it they probably don't realise the uh, the the engineering work feat that went into it so uh, a perfect situation uh, Brockton prisoner war camp So how many prisons actually held at Brockton? That's a kind of difficult one because we've never actually had a uh, there's never found any information on say a a weekly or daily roll call so all I can say is um, although there are in ultimately four camps all very close to each other camps a and b were the initial ones with the hospital and they could hold up to about six and a half thousand prisoners and then they then extended those two camps a and b to a um section uh two more camps which were used as trans transitory camp for uh, ncos being returned or repatriated via holland and sweden so the best estimate you could say is six and a half thousand in camp a and b uh, plus the additional three thousand uh the transitory troops you're talking about around nine thousand nine and a half thousand if it was full at any one time which it never seems to have been and do you know how many people actually went through the camp during its lifetime of great war it's over twenty one thousand. although if you want the specific answer i'd have 
have to look in the book. Um, so th- these sort of figures um, were, were, were registered by the uh, camp commandant, um, Lieutenant Colonel Sir Arthur Grant of the Grant Whiskey Dynasty. And he was asked to provide this information just for, for record. Seems to be that the, the, two, the two main camps were usually holding about around 3,000 in it. The actual prison, the actual prisoner war hospital had over 1,100 beds, which never got fully used. I think the one in example actually found specific numbers. It was about two thirds full, um, but that was after the fighting in uh, late 1917. Um, so obviously, a lot of German wounded prisoners were coming through the through the hospital. And what type of prisoners did it hold? Camp itself, there were um, all NCOs. There were no officers unless they were in the hospital. And of those NCOs, the vast majority were from the uh, German Imperial Army. And there was a, a handful of Austrians, as I've, as I've found out. And you get the occasional civilian that had been captured in um, campaigns in East Africa and bizarrely as far away as um, Tsingtao in China. Specifically within those groups, you had um, submarine crews and Zeppelin crews because the, the clerk, Horace Thompson, makes reference to these people not being the, the most popular prisoners um, in the camp itself. What was daily life like for POWs in the camp and how did they spend an average day? Very good question again. Whereas we watch prisoner war camps in the UK, such as uh, The Great Escape and things like that, where there were officers and ordinary soldiers kind of intermingling. Because Brockton was NCOs, there was, there were, uh, although they call them captains, they weren't actually captains within, uh, as in a rank. It was just that somebody was selected or nominated to be a camp leader. Um, so it was kind of difficult to get the men motivated by them following the um, instructions or the commands of, of German officers. So they were left pretty much to themselves. But what that resulted in is um, there's little um, cottage industries, for want of a better word, so there were little woodworking classes, manufacturing things, including a, a nice little box for Sir Arthur Grant. These these cottage industries also extended to doing work for the Royal Engineers on the camp in general. And um, there, were, there were maths lessons. There was, as I've mentioned, the, the actual newspaper itself, which came out probably, quick estimate, was probably two or three times a week at least. Not a huge amount of information, usually two-sided, but enough to um, at least keep people occupied. And obviously there, there'd be a, a secondary use for the the paper if there's toilet paper in short supply. Um, but it was interesting that a lot of the references from, from the Clark Harris Thompson is, is referring to people getting ready for after the war where they were training in English or bookkeeping or um, mathematics, uh, the, these jobs that they could look at, look forward to, you know, when, when host, hostilities finished. And as a, for instance, there's one, it looks like he was a very good architect. This guy, uh, this German prisoner, actually drew up um, plans for the, the, the theatre that was at the, um, the camp itself. Itself, um, which also doubled up as um, with billiard tables and card tables, as well as a barber's area. Um, and this guy was doing all these this work and um, designing bridges for for the construction in his homeland after the war. So they kept themselves occupied as good as they can. They seemed to have a good moan about the lack of variety in food. Although to be fair, they were very well fed. And for those who wanted to work, there, there was opportunities to go out and work in the field, which meant that they had um, additional food as well as they 
were paid at the time. And they were also used to um, work on local roads and sewerage farms and that sort of thing, just general labouring or in the fields for the um, for agriculture and that sort of thing. So there's plenty to keep them occupied if they chose to be occupied. There was football, plenty of football matches, there was sports available, and they could even go with a guard and walk around the perimeter of the barbed wire fence, um, which we probably now see today as sort of, as we've got lockdown, we can kind of empathise with these guys that were incarcerated for years. And it ended up, there's actually a, a chapter book called Barb, uh, The Barbed Wire Disease, because it was actually seen as a, as a psychological or, or, or PTSD, whatever you want to call it, issue at the time. Whereas we're sort of suffering for a few weeks. These guys were in, in behind barbed wire for several years. And how were the conditions in the camp monitored? Um, well, the camp had um, up to six um, interpreters, and there's a separate chapter on these interpreters, which in themselves were interesting subjects. I'm convinced that at least two of them were working um, for the for, for the war office to try and find out any um, any any plans to for, for sabotage and things like that, and any map that they managed to get hold of. Um, but but as well as that, you've you've got the newspapers. They had to make sure that those that the interpreters had to make sure that those newspapers were trans translated accurately so that the camp commandant Sir Arthur Grant can um, didn't have the wool pull up pulled over his eyes and that sort of thing but there was, there's also the, the Swiss legation made regular visits to the, to the camp because Rockton camp was um, a central camp for which there was satellite camps smaller camps dotted around the area uh, up to 30 40 miles away including the um, officers camp at Donington where the um, Gunter uh, Plushow managed to escape from uh, Gun- Gunter Plushow being the only the prisoner that um, escaped from the United Kingdom in the uh, in the First World War, or as what we would now call a home run. And um, so, as, as other, other than those, there were um, the, the actual Swiss legation were allowed to get free access to anyone that they wanted to speak to. There was never any attempts to um, ensure that they were they were overheard if necessary and that sort of thing. And the Swiss legation was that part of the, the International Red Cross? It was indeed, yes. And they, to be fair, that I get the impression that they worked very, very as you would expect with the Swiss very very neutrally for want of a better word there are comments of when there's been issues to do with the conduct of Sir Arthur Grant even they use the phrase he is firm but fair um, he, they knew the difficult position that he was in and when the grievances were brought to them um, both the Swiss legation and the um, people actually running Brockton camp including Sir Arthur Grant moved in effect moved heaven and hell to show how reasonable things were for example in the book there's a reference to the potato ration being cut from 20 ounces to 8 and Sir Arthur Grant pointed out to the Swiss legation and they were shown invoices. In actual fact, eight was the ration. He was managing to get 20, but not all the time. So it hadn't been cut. That was in addition to. So um, you get the very, you really do get the feeling that they, they um, and certainly looking at the pictures that are in the book, you get the feeling that the German prisoners, it wasn't a horrendous life and they were well fed. And if they wanted even more food, they could go and work and get paid for that work as well, as well as getting rations. And that said, did any of them try to escape and sort of how did the camp try and prevent them escaping um as well as the obvious double le- amounts of barbed wire so there's actually two fences around the actual whole perimeter there were escapes but not as many as like what you think when when, when you realize there were hundreds of work parties quite often with a single guard and some of these work parties would sleep in barns in the farms rather than having to come back to the camp every night um you'd expect there to have been a lot more escapes and you're talking about handfuls you're talking about three here from who chanced it on in um and got onto a slow moving train you talk about a few people um getting to as far as birmingham but obviously being recognized for want of a better word because they just look 
looked out of place. So there were no permanent escapes. There were only temporary where you're talking three or four days. Some of the guys managed to get a little bit further afield, but nine times out of ten they were caught very quickly because they just stood out like a sore thumb. And what happened to them when they when they when they returned to the camp? Did they undergo the sort of punishment that Steve McQueen did in in the Great Escape? Very good question. Again, uh, the only thing I've ever seen is uh, or or read, especially from uh, the Clark's letters, is they were basically uh, that there was although there was solitary confinement facilities or cells, if you'd like to call it, that didn't seem to deter the the escapee um but the camp commandant sir arthur grant was able to um, deny them letters from home and things like that but even he knew that if he cut the tobacco ration for for example he knew the rules and he could only do it four weeks or eight weeks depending and um so there were minor in, in, uh, inconveniences but certainly nothing like um the steve mcqueen um baseball baseball and baseball ball and glove scenarios uh, i think they were just kind of um ticked off shall we say was anybody um, killed in, in their attempts to, to escape? Um, yes, there were um, several shootings. Um, one of them, Carl Kabolik, actually is buried at the nearby Commonwealth Wargraves Cemetery. And he was shot because he managed to get between the, 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 the two lines of barbed wire um, fence. And the inquest, and this is where you see the, 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 the openness of this information, the inquest was in the newspapers locally. And basically, he'd, um, he'd, he'd gone to the um, cookhouse and seen the guards were in there and then he'd gone and he was pretending to um, reach for potatoes and that sort of thing between the fences and he was obviously trying to get out and he was told to move away and the, in, and, the, and he took his time and he was insolent shall we say and um, so he got shot um, unfortunately he was killed and there were other instances of, of prisoners getting shot and wounded so although you, you have to look at these things though, those are the rules um, although the, the, the German um, captain at the time did point out well what's the point in giving three warnings and then shooting somebody anyway oh dear <laughs> sorry about that I think one story that's been intriguing me since you mentioned it could you tell us about the officer who died right yeah um, that um, Captain Ca- Captain Captain he was um, from near he originally came from near um, Bicester in Oxfordshire and um, he was on the kind of re- retired list for want a better word and he volunteered to return to the colours and he was in his 60s and he ended up um, being part of the Royal Defence Corps as an officer and um, basically he'd been having diplomatic phrase here a dalliance with a local lady from Long Eaton which is near Nottingham who was half his age and you get the feeling he'd sort of as you would say bigged himself up and said look I've got all this money let's run away together I'm never actually certain here um, the way it was worded in the in the newspapers but on Valentine's Day he went to see her and maybe he was jilted maybe there was a problem but um valentine's day 1918 he was on the platform at uh, litchfield railway station and either he got saw got seen by the um the husband of the lady from long Eaton, or he decided if he has been jilted to commit suicide either way there's not sufficient circumstantial evidence to prove anything but he ended up on the railway track and um being run over by the train so at nine o'clock at night in february it's dark was he pushed by the husband or did he commit suicide he left he had left every waiting room at litchfield station nice and tidy there's no letter saying what he what, what his intentions were or did the husband see him and push him off the line intriguing 
<laughs> and so when did the camp close? Um, the camp stayed open while the negotiations for the Treaty of Versailles took place. And they it, they started sending the troops back. Once the treaty had been signed, the, the prisoners could start going back to Germany, um, the, usually the, the wounded first. So you're talking about late 1919, the actual stamp camp started to close as a prisoner of war camp, although camp remained because there were still troops training and these things take time to, to um, dissemble. There was talk at one point of the Procton Prisoner War Camp being used for um, Irish Republican Army prisoners uh, that were held at Wandsworth Jail, but that fell through. And when you get into 1919, 1920, the actual um, general Brock Camp, rather than specifically the Prisoner War Camp, was used to house a territorial force for training, um, instead of them going to usually in Rill uh, for, the, for the North and South Staffordshire Regiment. So just to keep the cost down. And then into 1920, 1921, the Hutment area was used for um, allowing children from the slums in London to come up and appreciate the local weather and, and that sort of thing and just get some fresh air. So then they eventually started selling off section by section. The barbed wire itself, the actual huts were, were broken down into sections and they're sold off and moved elsewhere. There is one of the huts still being used now. It's been renovated by the Staffordshire County Council and that's the Great War Hut on uh, Marcus Drive Visitor Centre, uh, which is in Hensford, the old RAF Hensford site. And that's a, we call it a living museum because there's lots of dioramas and um, beds laid out as if it was a proper hut and everything. So it's a great place to go and visit. And more importantly, it's free. And is there anything left of the camp today? You know, if I go on to Camp Canic Change, could you, could you point out sort of bits and bobs that are left? Well, that's one of the things that um, I wanted to make sure in the book it would help people. So we, we've, I, I put in three double page maps, two page map at the beginning so people can literally look at the icon for the camera and see what page 42's photograph is and the angle that's taken from and that sort of thing so that people can walk across the prisoner war camp and they can identify where the terraced areas were that the huts were uh, were positioned where the um, the coal bunker was that is referred to in the in the book where the German prison stole the coal from. The main um, route through the actual camp itself called Brockton Lagerstrasse uh, Prison Road, um, Lagerstrasse. Um, that's still very much visible because it was actually it had a lot of aggregate put down at the time of the actual construction of the camp. And there's um, parade grounds, which are nice, clear, clear areas where there hasn't been much grown grown over. And fascinating. And there are book photographs in the in the book on this. The actual raised flower bed of camp um, are still visible. They, the, the the prisoners actually, in order to use up time, going back to your question, how did they occupy their time? They they created uh, circular flower beds uh, with large stones uh, to sort of buttress up the and support the actual the ground where they, they they actually planted various plants it looks like roses in the pictures and that sort of thing so you can still find those quite large areas you're talking about 12 feet across 15 feet across and some some of the edges of the uh, the huts themselves are still visible um, as well as that, there's a few um, chimney, uh, brick chimney bases and that sort of thing. I'm trying to think what else there was. And of course, you've actually got what started up the whole story completely is the, uh, the metal sewer covers that, are, that started all this off. Because we um, at the Staffordshire Record Office in Stafford, um, Ben Cunliffe said, well, there's a sewer map of the whole camp. So we sectioned it down, but you can actually find these sewer covers, these metal sewer covers, most of which are round. They're still over the chase, so the piping is still underneath the ground. So those sections are still visible on the landscape. 
And finally, Richard, where can people learn more? Well, there, there is information at the um, Marcus Drive Visitor Centre Great Wall Hut when it reopens, um, but also the, the book itself, if that's what you mean. The book itself is available at Amazon. It's got some good reviews and, and on, on the, online, and you can also get it from the uh, publisher, which is pen-and-sword.co.uk. The Waterstones actually have the book in stock on their website, so you can buy it um, on the internet or also in their shop again when they're when they're back open richard thank you very much for your time great thank you very much you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorpe thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition the theme music for this podcast was george buthworth's the banks of green willow it was performed by the bbc national orchestra of wales conducted by chris russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.